0: Hey everyone, this is Lynn Barton, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. or on the web at su.edu slash apex. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. Right, everyone. Well, welcome to the Apex Hour. It is September twenty fourth, twenty twenty, and it is homecoming week here at Southern Utah University, and the beginning of the Apex Events season. So, to kick off our live Apex Hours and our Apex Events this year, we've been celebrating alumni, but with a twist this year. Typically, our first event is bringing an alumnus home to share all of their things that they're doing. But this year, our twist is that we're bringing a professor back. Um, So we have had an amazing day so far with David Lee, Utah's first poet laureate, and perhaps more importantly, faculty member of Southern Utah University for over three decades. So please welcome David Lee, thank you so much for being here. That's
1: an amazing
0: wowser. Thank you. (laughs) Well, what a
1: fun day it has been.
0: Well, you deserve as much fun as we can possibly give you. (laughs) (laughs) And so I want to start, and I have so many things to ask you about your writing and your process and everything, but I want to start out a bit about your history because in my research, you have one of the more unique histories. (laughs) So in, in there, I read Boxing, baseball, pig farming, you know, professor, scholar on Milton. So I don't know where to start with those. I would love to know just a bit about maybe the boxing part.
1: Uh, I was a uh, tall, skinny kid growing up, which I failed to do. Uh, <laughs> I didn't have a lot of athletic talent i i wasn't fast but i certainly wasn't quick i wasn't big but i wasn't strong either uh and and i wanted to do something and uh, i was uh at that time i've shrunk into myself now i was up around six foot two and i could get down and box welterweight at 142 pounds Ah. so they uh they called me the grasshopper because I I looked like something weird inside. Now I say I boxed. I did not say I was any good. <laughs> I did it to 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 I I did it to prove something to myself. And I don't think I ever could articulate what it was I was trying to prove. I never was into violence. Uh-huh. I. I didn't really like hitting people, and I sure didn't like getting hit. Uh, right, right. <laughs> but it was, it, was, it was almost like a form of ballet. Oh. And I had a very, very good coach. He insisted that we learn to play chess. No
2: because kidding. Because he said
1: anything you learn on this board will be applicable because what you do to learn to box, it's not fighting. Right. And he considered it an art form. I, I no longer do, but he said defense is the most important part of, do- of boxing. Huh. Don't get hit don't get hurt. So, it was a game. Oh. It was a game. But but again, I did it, but I wasn't much good at it. I played a lot of chess. I don't remember ever winning a chess match. <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: awesome. But then where did the baseball come in cuz that's that's two athletic things. Well,
1: uh, 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 I was the I, I was always the youngest kid in my class. Got set up a grade in school and uh when when my classmates were in Pony League, I was still in Little League.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When I was in Pony League, they were in Babe Ruth League. So in a sense, I was academically one year older than my peer group oh. and yet one year younger than my actual school group. And baseball was the one sport I excelled in at that age. And I think that's probably the reason for it. I was I was the big kid, the old kid on the block. Uh, I watched a baseball game on television once, and the pitcher was a man named Hoyt Wilhelm. And he threw—I'm holding my fingers for you like that—he threw the knuckleball. Right. And it seems like he may have thrown a no-hitter. Mm. But anyway, they interviewed him at the end of the game— And he showed how to hold the pitch. And he said, if you can throw it, you'll probably throw it pretty much perfectly the first time. And if you can't, you'll never be able to throw it. So I went out and I could throw it. Uh And I could throw that butterfly pitch. It's not fast, but it just floats and wobbles. And and like one of my favorite baseball players said when he was a catcher and they said, how did you ever catch Hoyt Wilhelm? And he said, oh, it's very easy. The ball would go by me, and I'd walk till it stopped, and I'd pick it up and throw it back to him. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So it's, again, same thing. I was a legend in my own mind. I wasn't really very good. I was lucky. I had two mothers, my birth mother, but I also had the woman who adopted me, Miss Leela. She was a black woman. And one day she came in and said, "Uh, Mr. Dave, you got your glove and your cleats in the car? And I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, you need to go down by the airport. They need you this afternoon. Well, that was the black kids. That was the blue stars. Yeah. And that, that shocked me, stunned me a little bit. I said, oh, Miss Lila, I don't, I don't believe I can do that. She said... Oh, darn, Mr. Day, I just don't believe I can have no supper at all ready for you tonight. Uh. And uh, so I went down because the Anderson boys, one of them had broken his arm that day, and the other one I think got put in jail that day. And they (laughs) needed somebody to do batting practice and throw them and whatnot. And we got along famously, and they adopted me on their team. So and that's so I got story. to play. I got to play in the Texas Negro Leagues for the post-Texas Blue Stars. And my favorite story out of that is on Juneteenth. I think it was the first year I played with them. Anyway, they I mostly played home games. I didn't travel with mm-hmm. the team because I was nervous about that. They were too. But we had a game at Tohoka up on top of the Cap Rock, 26 miles away. And Coach wouldn't let us put our cleats on, our baseball shoes in his car. and mess up his flow boats. <laughs> but we got near Tahoka, and he said, get your shoes on, get your shoes on. We're running late, and I know he is going to make us get out and go right to the field right then. not let us warm out, warm up. I'm going to open the doors, pile you out of the car. I'll take some time finding me a parking place. I'll stall as long as I can, get loosened up. So, my catcher s k Hardaway, and I got off and were throwing the ball, and I saw him park his car and then he got out and leaned on the hood and pulled paper and a pencil out of his pocket, and leaned over, and he would look at us, and he'd make a line up like he had never done it before in his life, and had to think about who's going where and finally, the other the coach of the other team came walking over, leaned across the hood. And didn't look at me, just pointed his finger at me and said to my coach, my coach's name was Heavy, What is that? (laughs) And Heavy said, Oh, it's an albiner.
0: That's fantastic. It was it was a
1: wonderful, wonderful experience. But uh, same thing. Was I a good baseball player? I wasn't even a legend in my own mind. No, <laughs> I was not. Uh, but
0: that is a great story, and and I was wondering how that all came to be from reading your bio. So thanks yeah, for sharing that. You're welcome. Now, were you always a reader? Uh, where did the Was the writing and the and getting involved in writing always a part of things, or did that come later in school? Where did that start? In involving itself,
1: I think. I, I, I think first of all, I think you're a musician. Mm-hmm. Do you choose to be a musician, or does it choose you?
0: You know, I'm asked that all the time. I think ultimately it chooses me, but maybe I didn't know it all the time. I, I, I agree.
1: Mm. I don't think you choose to become a writer. I think the words choose you. Yeah. I knew in first grade, I was fascinated with learning to make these things on paper, and they made words, and they made meaning. I, I was fascinated with that. I was a terrible student, even in the first grade. I didn't like school. I didn't like... I just... But I liked writing and I liked making stories. And I remember in the fourth grade, and in the fourth grade I stuttered and and was very, very, very shy. But we would write stories and Mrs. Rayfelt would ask if anybody wanted to read, and the the class would say, David, read his because I wrote funny things and oh. vulgar things and you know, fourth fourth grade humor things, but but they liked it. And that was the first audience I ever had. Uh the, the best for as being a writer, the best thing that ever happened to me, I was uh I was given adult status at age fourteen. Oh. Which meant that I could get a job working as an adult. And I got a job. In the cotton mill in my hometown, Post Texas, Burlington Industries. We made the sheets for back then, J.C. JCPenney. Uh-huh. And I worked out in the yard, uh, toting, uh, you don't tote, hauling around on trucks, bales, eight, 500 pound bales of cotton. And when, when the sheets were made, they would put them in boxes that weighed 30, 40 pounds, and we would load them in box cars. And I worked with old men, mm. almost as old as I am now. And they accepted me, and they were all talkers. Most of them had been through the, the, the second uh, Dust Bowl days in Texas in the late 1940s. Everybody knows about the 20s. There was one in the 40s that was devastating. And there was one fellow I worked with who's a character in my books, R.B. McCravey. He lost a two-section ranch, 1,300 acres, outside Florida, Texas, because there was no rain. All his cattle died. And he was working as a day laborer, having been a very successful rancher. And they were talkers, and they were storytellers. Mm -hmm. And because of my little speech impediment, I didn't talk very much back then. I became a very good listener. And much of what I do, especially in my oral tradition poems, comes right out of that experience, Uh age 16. Mark Twain said, and so did... uh, Proust, Remembrance of Things Past. Both of them said some version of any person who has lived through a childhood has enough material to write on for 400 years. Huh. And virtually everything I write comes out of those years.
0: Oh, beautiful. That's uh, great. Well— well then I want to ask you uh, your PhD and 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 a lot of your study and you say it a, a devotee of Milton. Yes. And so I was curious <laughs> where the passion for Milton came from and and what about that writing specifically spoke to you early on and perhaps also even now or if it's changed.
1: I was a late bloomer in college. I did I, I my first three years of college were in seminary the, the, theology training. And I basically majored in mediocrity. (laughs) I I didn't work. I didn't try very hard. I didn't do very well. Uh, Found out during my third year that I'm going to get a major in something I may not even believe in. I Ah. need out of here. And I transferred to Colorado State University. And I got discovered in a Greek tragedy class. Oh, wow. Uh, The professor gave the midterm. When we came back in, he handed me mine when I walked in, and he said, would you read through it, please? It didn't have a mark on it or anything. and I wanted to say something like, am I in trouble? Uh, But I said, okay. I read through it. We had the class. And he said, I'm going to cut the class short uh, today, early. Uh, I'm going to have a member of the class read something to you. Uh, I've not had something quite like this before. So I read my blue book out loud, and then he passed out the other blue books, and he said, may I have yours back? Uh. And I said, I don't get it. He said, yes, you do. Uh, You will be in my office Tuesday afternoon at 2 o'clock, and you do not have anything uh, in the way of that. I have checked your schedule. You be there. I went to his office. He had my files laid out on his desk. And he said, please close the door. Oh, wow. And during the next 15 or 20 minutes, he informed me of what a disgrace I had been, what a shame. And he said, I I know you're a religious person. You've betrayed the God you think you don't believe in. (laughs) And he just said, look what you've done compared to what you could have done. Anyway, I walked out of that room a convert. Yeah. they did not even know what to do with me at Colorado State because they didn't know what to do with those courses in theology and homiletics and all of that. So the easiest thing to do was give me a degree in speech because huh. anybody, you could get a degree, any anybody, Donald Trump could get a degree in speech. <laughs> uh, that's not a Yes, it is totally appropriate. All right. Uh, but I started taking—Arthur but, but Cash was that teacher. I started taking every class from him I could and others as well and found out I really like this. I like this English, and I, and I, and I, I do like writing. Um, and so when I graduated and filled out my graduation forms, I handwrote them, and my handwriting wasn't really good. It said major, and I put an S-P, and then I put E-N-G, and my S looked a little bit like an A, and so my college graduation, my certificate from Colorado State says David Lee, who majored in agricultural engineering.
2: Oh my goodness!
1: <laughs> so I got I got drafted. I really am closing in on Milton. Okay, I, <laughs> no, I know I'm fine. rambling, but I'm I'm nothing if I'm not redundant and rambling. All right. But it's great uh, to
0: hear that sense of well, purpose and how it well, came to
1: you. I graduated on March twenty second, 1967, and on March twenty third, I got my uh, draft notification. Ah. So uh, my faculty at Colorado State wanted me to not be drafted, wanted me to go to Canada, wanted me to get uh, exemptions. Uh, uh, My dad was a World War II vet. I couldn't do it. It would have humiliated him. So I went. I served. I hated it. But I did come out with the GI Bill. Yeah. And I am not sorry at all even though I detested my 2 years in the military and uh but but enough of that. I had the GI bill and I uh came back and went to Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado mm-hmm. because I hadn't certified to teach. Mm-hmm. And I did my teaching certificate uh there. But a professor, visiting professor from the University of Utah, Floyd O'Neill, who ran the Western Humanities Center, uh, heard me talking one night to a group of friends, and he came over and asked me what my plans were, and I said, I guess I'm going to be teaching next year, and he said, college, and I said, oh, no, no, I just have a B.A. and just did my teaching certificate, and he said, you belong in graduate school. Huh? Nobody had ever said that before. And he said, I will help you uh, pick out the schools you want to. I want to invite you to come to the University of Utah. Uh, uh, In in, in any case, long story short, I ended up going to Idaho State University, which at that time was – Halcyon days. It was it was in a high point. Uh, David H. Stewart was running the English department, one of the finest administrators in, in the history of higher education. But also there was a professor there named Larry Rice, and he was brilliant and wonderful. I took his methods of literary research class, which I had my mind fully made up, I would hate every second of it, adored it, and the next semester he taught John Milton. And I fell in love with John Milton, but remember, I spent my first three years of college in seminary training. Uh, so Paradise Lost, this magnificent story of Adam and Eve and and the lost garden and the fall of... It was up my avenues, mm-hmm. and I couldn't help but love the guy, uh, uh, both, both Larry Rice and John Milton. Mm-hmm. And that, that was the, the initial meeting. That turned out to be the only course in, in Milton I actually took. I did the rest of it independent because the when I went finally to the University of Utah to get a doctorate, uh, the Milton teacher was on sabbatical that year. Mm. And kid, I did everything wrong. Yeah. I, uh, uh, I, I came out with a chip of the Army with a chip on my shoulder and was in a hurry to get a job. And, and I just saw it as a union card. I got my master's degree in nine months.
2: Wow! And
1: I did my doctor's degree in one year.
2: Wow! And
1: uh, and missed so much. Mm. I don't recommend that to anybody. I, I missed so so much. I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like uh, Marlon Brando. Could have been a contender, uh, <laughs> but 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 I but 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 I got that, and then came down here and got my first job. And they had a Milton course that hadn't been taught in years. Ah. And I, I said, why? And said, because no, nobody wants to teach that. And I said, somebody does. Yeah. <laughs> and so the, the reputation was developed there. I, I haven't done much research or publication on Milton. In fact, I wrote a poem about him this past year. It's one of the first that's specifically on it. Uh, it's a love affair.
0: Ah. yeah. Well, I wanted to ask, does the love affair still exist? But it sounds yes. like yes, it does.
1: Yes. This past year in Spain, I, I, every wonder, I do a study project, research study project. And this last year, for, for the first time since I retired from here 17 years ago, I went back and read Milton just for kicks, just for pleasure, and re in love with him. He is as good as I remembered, and it didn't always work that way. I tried a fast study the year before. It failed miserably. Uh, I did a Dante study three years ago. It did not work well at all either. Uh but the Milton thing did, and,
0: and uh, with your feelings now, I understand why you fell in love with him then. But now, how would you describe that that lasting effect? What is it about Milton that that lasts for well, you? Well,
1: now I speak as a poet, ah. and Milton really, in many ways, is the poet who invented the English language. Huh. I, I mean, when when you look at what was going on in the English language, you know, rhyme and meter. Mm. If you read Paradise Lost in the beginning, before the beginning of the poem, there's a little paragraph called the verse, and in the verse it has this sentence: "The reader will notice in this poem the absence of rhyme, that being the invention of a wretched and barbaric age that has produced naught but lame matter and halting meter." Bobby Bear, drop kick it, Jesus, through the goalposts of life. <laughs> uh, Milt, Milt, Milton taught me. That you don't have to use the standard tools of poetry, A, and B. English is one of the most beautiful languages ever invented for poetry. Now, it's, it's, it's as the poem that I read today uh, that Eleanor Wilner said, Italian asks, how does it want to be said? English, what do, how, how does it mean? What does it mean? And Milton was one who had the ability to do both. Some of his language is just Deliciously wonderful just to hear, and you could listen to it if you weren't an English speaker. Mm. And, and you, you would fall in love with the rhythms that he sets and the things that he could do. So I came to him the second time late in my career as a poet, reading him again as a poet, not as a teacher. And I re fell in love with him. He was brilliant. He was amazing. Do I want to meet him in the afterlife? Mm
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic from, uh,
1: That's a love affair from the distance
0: Yeah <laughs> Right at arm's length Well this is a perfect place to take a little okay. rest with that And um, I like to play some music And I uh, in my reading and my research Found that, that you're quite a lover of jazz I think Aficionado I, I love
1: jazz Yes
0: So I My next
1: a- book's going to have jazz as a baseline.
0: I was wondering about that yes. So that is That's the next book huh
1: That's the next That's it, it, it's actually going to be two books So I, I can talk about that Yeah, but we'll come back I do, Yes, I do have a book on jazz Yes
0: Okay, well we're going to have some classics here This is In a Sentim- Sentimental Mood Duke Ellington uh-huh. How Can You Go Wrong You're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1 all right well welcome back that was in a sentimental mood a great uh classic uh played by duke ellington you're listening to the apex hour this is ksu youth under 91.1 and i am joined by david lee welcome back david
1: welcome welcome thank you
0: I want to get into talking about your writing and some of the themes and topics and that kind of thing. And the first thing I want to ask you Mm. about is, um, the sense of voice, um, your voice in your writing is very distinctive and, and people, yeah, I've read about people talking just about that and, um, the vernacular speech and the very comfortable and it's so warm and homey in so Mm. many ways. And I was just wondering, um, how that came to be. And I know you shared a story with me of one yeah. of your early poems that yeah. sort of helped you find your voice. And I wondered if you might tell us a oh, bit about didn't that.
1: Help. It didn't help it. It gave it to me in one night. Uh, first of all, I came to poetry initially. Initially, I wanted to be a novelist. Oh. In, in fact, the first book I wrote was a novel. Not a good one. Thank, I, 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 I pray Prayers of thanks, often that uh, to, to the gods who prohibited it from being published. I could have never lived it down, uh, but but I thought that because I'm a storyteller, I thought that would be my strength, and it was in graduate school. I don't remember the exact challenge, but it was a, a statement was made: there's never been a significant Rocky Mountain poet, hmm. and someone ought to step up into that. Hmm. I mean, it didn't really stick, but it was sort of pasted on the outside of my head. And then I I, I was taking all these classes that were poetry-based, and I really, if my life had depended on it, I couldn't have told the difference between a good and a bad poem. I didn't know much about poetry. I could read them, and I could take exams and write papers, but to But to have poems in front of me, say a John Donne poem and a Rod McEwen poem, I don't know that I would have – I hope I would have known the excellence and the lack of excellence, but not for sure. Hmm. Anyway, graduate school in the writing program saw me reading all these books about poetics. And he said – He grabbed me and he said, if you will come to my house Sunday afternoon, I will show you more in one afternoon than you will learn in five months of reading those books. I'll show you how to write a poem. And I'll show you. I did. And he did. And he taught me how. And I have to admit, everything he taught me, I had to unlearn. Oh. But if you've got a beginning, you can get anywhere else from there. If you don't have a beginning, you know where you're going. You're lost. He gave me a beginning, that touchstone, and I will always adore the memory of Ron Hall for getting me started and getting me in that direction. And I started reading poetry in a different way. Mm. But my early poems were open to invitations, imitations of other poets. In the 18th century, they constantly talked about reading the ancients and doing imitations. So I read and I imitated trying to learn different forms and styles and whatnot. And everything I wrote was pretty much academic with, without a voice. Mm. And then I told you the story. Uh, we lived outside Cedar City, Utah, uh, on, a, on a little farm in Mid-Valley Acres, 10 acres. And uh, I got a couple of pigs Jan wanted nothing whatsoever to do with them. They're nasty. They're dirty. They smell. (laughs) And, of course, within three months, she was so addicted to them that uh, that they were her pet. She wanted to bring them in the house, I mean, for heaven's (laughs) sakes. But it became part of our life. But I formed not only a, a, a friendship but a partnership with John Sims, the fellow who sold me those two pigs, the initial two pigs. And one night he called and said, Dave, are you real busy tonight? I think it was a Saturday, and I didn't study that hard on Saturdays. I, I First years here, I studied nonstop because I didn't know enough. Uh, but Saturdays, I'd take some time off. So I said, no. He said, come over. Uh, bring Jan, too. I've got something to show you. So we went over, and John had a little bitty red pig uh, that he had bred too early. Mm. And she was getting ready to birth and her canal was too small. Mm. So we spent the night working with it. It wasn't a Saturday. It was a Sunday. It was a Sunday night. We spent the, the night doing that. And Jan did get in there and and work with that Sal. And I, I'm, I'm going to let the story, that story stop there. We went home somewhere between 2 and 4. Uh, Jan went to bed. I knew I couldn't go to sleep. I was too wired from that. And back to the previous hour, I had a Milton class that day, mm-hmm. and for me, a very important lecture uh, talk I needed to give, and I hadn't worked my way completely through it. So I told Jan, "I don't need the the sleep. I'm going to work work on my Milton lecture." She said, "Okay, okay, okay. I, you know, I could I could back then I could do that sort of thing." Somewhere around six o'clock, I woke up. I was sitting straight up with the pencil in my hand, poised to write. I had a cup of coffee in front of me, stone cold, with a spider floating in it. And I looked down at my yellow pad of notes, and there was a full poem written. Title of the poem is For Jan With Love. And that was the day I discovered the voice. Hmm. It was in the voice of John and me. There was no academic pretentiousness. It is loaded with... uh, N- not polite social <laughs> linguistics. Uh, but there it was. And, and as I said today, sometimes as a writer, as as an artist, you produce something you don't know how you did. It's above you. It's beyond you. And you have to either destroy it or be in awe of it or or, or, or learn to use it. I learned to use it because what I saw, I liked. I first of all thought that can't be poetry, ah. not written that way. And then, of course, I thought, why not? Why not? Yeah. Yes. And that was my beginning. That was the the first of the voice that's known as a John voice. And Mm -hmm. I used it through, I think, either four or five books. And then I came to a book uh, called My Town. I don't even think I have a copy of that with me. But uh, in My Town, I found a new voice. And I mentioned earlier when we were talking about the baseball game at Tahoka, I mentioned my catcher S. K. Hardaway, and I loved that kid. Uh, but in my book, he, he became E. U. Washburn. And there was a tradition in a lot of Texas towns where I was reared, where when a child was born, you opened the Bible and put your finger down, and the noun closest to it was what the child would be named oh and eu's washburn his family had i think nine boys and no girls and they'd used up jesus and joshua <laughs> and abraham and they pointed and the closest to it was ethiopian eunuch oh and they decided since he would never learn to spell that right they called him eu that e. was his name huh. and he became my voice because he was a very quiet young man very shy. He worked in a graveyard, and he was a mystic. He believed he did not accept death. Dead, they are most surely living. And he would talk to them, and he believed when they wanted to, they could communicate with him. And he became my voice.
0: Wow. So you've had several voices that that really are identities
1: in a way. They are. and, And that's actually what I do. Uh, I don't so much write my poems as much as I dream them. I believe in voices. Uh, In in, in Book Nine of Paradise Lost, John Milton says, these voices were dictated whilst slumbering by the Holy Spirit, and they were all given. He took no claim for anything he wrote. He listened and simply made do with what he got. And... I realized later, it's exactly what I'm doing. I see. And uh, the, the first time I wrote a poem out of E.U. Washburn's family with a feminine voice. Oh. I just said, the sister. And I wrote the poem, published the poem, read it a couple of times in front of audiences. It was after either the second or the third time that I wrote it that she appeared to me in the dream. And she said, you call all my brothers by their name. You never call me by my name. I had to say, I don't know your name. She said, yes, you do. Yes, you do. They opened the book. They pointed. And my mother said, you are not going to name my baby girl no damn book of Luke.
2: Uh,
1: Her name is trepidatious. And that is my name. And so from then on, every time I read the poem, I would call her name. This is trepidatious Washburn. And one day I forgot to do it at a reading. She came that night and she kicked the out of me.
0: Wow. Yes.
1: So they're, they're that real to it me. It
0: gives me chills. So, so sometimes writers talk about their voices being versions of themselves. But this doesn't sound like that to me. This sounds no, like I'm a, people speaking through you. I'm a
1: vehicle. Uh-huh. I'm a vehicle. They talk through me. They give their stories. I had a dead spell in writing in a long while. It was when I I, I had uh, started writing this book. It's a new book, Blue Bonnets, Firewheels, mm-hmm. Wheels, and Brown-Eyed Susans, uh, Women of Texas, 1948-62. Mm-hmm. Every poem in here is from a woman. Okay. But right in the middle of that, I got sidetracked uh, with with the death of my Big brother, closest friend, Bill Clefkarn had to write this book for him. Last Call, which Last is Call. amazing. Uh, have you read Last yes. Call? Okay. Oh, yay, I'm delighted. Well, I had to write that. Uh, and by the way, Klefkorn's one of my voices. Ah. Uh, I was house-sitting for uh, a friend in Washington. They went somewhere, and Clefkarn came to see me. He said, uh, he's got a writer studio. Get yourself out there. Let's start this book. Whoa, whoa, wait, wait, Bill. No, you're not. You and I are going to write a book together. This one's got to be a good one because this one's going to be about me. So you're going to have to have some help. And I will swear to anybody go to my dying day with laying my hand on it saying, This book is co written. He came in and we talked through these poems and he literally gave me the poems that lead up to the monument on the South Plains, that big thing that the boy builds out of used farm equipment and whatnot. Bill dictated those poems to me. Some of them he would give me things and I would have to write them, but he's there. But in any case, now that aside, when I came back to this book after having been away for I think 14 months, my friend uh, and the uh, Nevada writer Steve Nightingale gave me his house up in the mountains for two weeks and just said, I think you need a writer's retreat. And I went up there and did nothing for a couple of days, and that third night I opened up and the women came back to me screaming, where have you been? And there is one woman in here uh shoot uh, there, there, there's there, there's one woman in here who came
0: she's gonna be mad at you tonight
1: oh she's going to be I haven't, <laughs> I haven't looked at this book in, in just ages uh, oh it doesn't really it, it doesn't really matter what her name is anyway these women were all yelling at me and then I heard a that biblical thing, a still, small voice. I heard a still, small voice in the back of the room saying, I will give you my story. And I kept trying to get through to her, and she said, I'm back here. I'll give you my story, and I'll give you my voice. And I I think it's one of my Oh, All time favorite poems. I, I just haven't read from it in ages.
0: Uh, well, we can find it during the musical uh, break uh, if you want.
1: I I, I I can. In any case, it was just one of those uh, moments where the poem was completely dictated to me by the voice of a woman who began when she was a little girl. Wow! Up to the, fine, uh, the time that she was an old older woman, and uh, that was a major breakthrough. Breakthrough learning to think and speak in a woman's voice. Wow. And, uh, so that's part of the cycle, too.
0: I mean, I thoroughly love hearing this because I, I, w- I had a quote that you had spoken about something magical happening with your writing, uh, being surprised by the twists and turns and direction. And now uh-huh. it, it all resonates. It uh-huh. all makes sense that uh-huh. this is what you're talking about. And I was going to ask you about muses and this kind of thing. But
1: absolutely now
0: I, this makes complete sense, this yeah, vehicle no. concept.
1: I do believe in muses. Mm. I believe in those voices. Uh, and uh, I hope I don't get too much like Willie Nelson, but you know, <laughs> yeah. Do my, you feel that
0: you have to particularly open yourself up to it? Do you have to be at a in a particularly peaceful or mindful place in your own life, or does it just happen all the time? It certainly helps. Yeah.
1: Well, well, maybe not peaceful, mind, mindful in my own life. I think what, and I'm, I think of musicians this way too. What I really like is privacy, quiet. And a door that shuts and locks.
2: <laughs>
1: I, li- I like to be totally and completely alone. I don't have to be happy mm. and I don't have to be having good time in my life. Mm. but I need that complete inner solitude where I can totally empty out. Ah. And then the voices come in on their own. And generally they're polite with each other and generally most of the time, quite polite with me. Uh, here's a story. Here's a story. I'm, I'm allowed to sort of make choices along the uh. way. Some of them get pretty ticked off when I don't choose them, but, the, but they'll come back. It's uh, a bit
0: like your childhood, listening when you were working. Yeah. Wow. It's very
1: much like that great very 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 much like that well let's
0: play one more song and and then more questions okay and and from there so i have i have some bill evans for you oh i
1: love (laughs) bill evans too all right
0: i i guessed right then uh this is skating in central park and uh, you're listening to the apex hour ksuu thunder 91.1 Welcome back, everyone. This is the Apex Hour. You're listening to KSU Youth Under 91.1. That was Skating in Central Park by the great Bill Evans. I am joined in the studio with poet and SUU English professor, uh, now retired,
1: uh, David Lee. Welcome back, David. Thank you. Delighted to be back. So we did- This hour has just flown by. Now, (laughs) I've probably rambled and jabbered too much, but wow,
0: No, you haven't. It has been absolutely fun and magical. So I am enjoying every single minute of it. But I remembered that we did not get back to our jazz conversation. Uh So I would love to ask about your relationship with jazz and the upcoming books
1: well the upcoming i have i have two upcoming books w- one of them is a stunner for me i had a call out of the clear blue sky from a person that i have an absolute god's ransom of respect for a a, a writer i revere and he said uh Dave, a group of us are going to do a conglomerate and uh We want to publish beautiful books. We want to publish books that no one will say, well, don't judge a book by its cover, because we're going to put the best covers in the world on them. But we want them to be the best books we can get out there. And I just wanted to know if you'd like to join us. And I said, well, Steve, I'd love to join you. But the fact of the matter is I'm not wealthy. I, I don't have a lot of money I can put. And he said, no, no, Dave, you're not hearing what i'm asking or i'm not asking it uh correctly we would like the first book that we do to be your book wow we want to do your selected poems well that's you know that's about the highest honor a writer can get yes. uh that sounds a bit self-aggrandizing but that's big in my life yeah uh, and that means that means I've got to spend a bit of time now going back through all my work. And as you've seen, as we've been talking, I don't even remember my own work. <laughs> this is going to be getting reacquainted with somebody. I think I've forgotten. Well, you're so ways. prolific. Yeah, too many. I've published about twenty five books, wow. so I've got a lot of work to do. But but I'm I I I, I really want to do that. I mean, that's that's a pinnacle. that we can reach. The other book, however, is the book that I thought I would start next. Uh, And it does have, not everything in the book is going to be based on jazz. But I think the centerpiece poem in the book is going to go into my background in theology and then my love for jazz. And it will be titled, it is titled, I've already written that poem. It's a long poem, seven-part poem. It's The Canonical Hours. And I have one part for each of the seven hours of prayer during the day. And then for each of those hours, I have chosen a jazz figure, like you played Ellington. Well, I've got Ellington in. And, of course, with that one, I want that to be totally smooth. And his transitions, so amazing. And I wanted to do that, Uh, a section that I really, really liked writing, even though I trembled and I even wept when I wrote it. It was my section on Billie Holiday. Oh. Yeah. When she died, she had a ten dollar bill taped to her body.
0: Oh wow. Uh
1: a sad, sad yeah. broken down death. But but I've also got, you know, some some other wild jazz players in there to wake you up and uh What a great concept. Uh, it was fun. It was fun. I had already written a poem. We, at the time, owned a little place up on the Cascade River, right under the Canadian border, and I had written a day up there, a three-part day, and I used jazz in that one. Mm. I started well, that one of the first jazz songs I remember hearing uh, was "The Birth of the Blues." Mm. Uh, take a whippoorwill, the shrill of a blue note, mm. push it through a horn. Anyway. And and the person who sang it wasn't even really known as a great jazz singer. It was Dinah Shore. Oh, yeah. She had a marvelous voice, yes. beautiful yeah. voice. Mm-hmm. And I was probably five or six when I heard her sing that, and it stuck with me hmm. forever. And, and then, then I moved to two more progressions and based on jazz. So that's, that's what I'm, I'm doing.
0: Now are both of those poems already published and available or only will be in this book? No. uh,
1: the canonical hours was published in a magazine called paddlefish. It was published a couple of three years ago, as a matter of fact. And that, magazine went out of print uh i have not published the the uh, other poem that i talked about i'm not sure it's finished yet Um, i'm I'm, I'm not sure how good it is i feel good about the canonical hours mm, i do uh but yeah yeah it's 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 fun going back i've got another one a rip snarter poem of driving through Nevada, from Idaho or somewhere, trying to get down to Mesquite, Nevada, where uh-huh. we live, and the only thing I can find is a jazz station. And so we punctuate that the weather and the wind and the jazz, and uh, and I had great fun writing that one. Yeah. Oh, I love it! Rollicking well, jazz.
0: I cannot wait for this book. I think oh. it sounds great. Well, we are already, if you can believe it, out of time. Ah, I, I know. I could talk to you for hours. I want to ask you about how poems get finished, when you know they're done, and all Oh, that. no, no.
1: I'll answer that right now. Okay. A poem is never finished. It's finally abandoned in despair. <laughs> <laughs> you never are finished. That's like asking you. It's so, so Are you true. through practicing for your concert? You know?
0: It's never done. I could always be practicing more. No performance yes. is ever yes. perfect. You yes. know?
1: I'm digging it for this selected poems. I told you, yeah. I have started on a little bit. I've gone back and looked at poems I wrote 40 years ago, and I've taken out a pencil, licked the eraser, and I'm rewriting uh. sections, you know? No, it's never finished.
0: Well, my two final questions are Good. quick ones. Okay. And the first one that I ask everybody, and it's sort of a funny one. You can take it however you like. But if you were to meet the you from 10 years ago in a bar fight, oh. who would win that fight?
1: Ho. Oh. <laughs> 10 years ago, I wasn't 76. <laughs> uh,
0: but maybe wiser.
1: I think I'm wise enough now to know how to get out of that bar fight.
0: Okay, so you would uh, win because you you you'd know how to get away.
1: I I think I I I think I have the ability to say, let's talk this out. I uh, see. And <laughs> do you really want to get in a fight with an old man? I mean, I can humiliate them. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh,
0: well, that's no, a great answer. No,
1: the the one ten years ago was was in a lot better shape and was. <laughs> nastier than I am I see,
0: I see. I've gentled
1: down a little bit. (laughs) I see. My wife has domesticated me. I
0: see, I see. Well, and my last question I ask everyone is, what's turning you on right now? And it could be anything. It it could be just the the smallest thing or the biggest thing, but it gives our audiences just another little glimpse. So David Lee, what is turning you on right now?
1: I'm going to speak from today. Today is turning me on right now. This has been one of the very Biggest days of my life. Uh, I retired 17 years ago. I've only been back on the campus. This is my third time, all totaled. Wow. Uh, I came back for the rededication of the Braithwaite Arts Building and got to talk about my heroes then. I came back when the college was gracious and gave me an honorary doctorate, a humiliating day. (laughs) And I came back today, invited back to talk to my former students. And it has... You've, we've been together all day. It's frightened me. I, uh, I didn't know if I could do it. I, I was I was afraid. Uh, and it has been one of the very, very, very best days of my life. Uh I've loved today. So that's what's turned me on lately, today, today.
0: Wonderful. That warms my heart to hear. And that is a perfect moment to sign off on. David, thank you so much for your time my today. My
1: absolute pleasure. I've loved it. I, I wasn't really looking forward to an interview because I thought, oh, no, I'll bomb. She'll be embarrassed. <laughs> no thank way. Thank you. I it, loved it.
0: Well, it was absolutely my pleasure. I loved every minute. So, so. did I. So Great. did I. Yes. Well, thanks, everyone. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. Come find us again next Thursday at 3 p.m. for more conversations with the visiting guests at Southern Utah University and new music to discover for your next playlist. And in the meantime, we would love to see you at our events on campus. To find out more, check out suu.edu apex. Until next week, this is Lynn Vartan saying goodbye from the Apex Hour here on Thunder 91.1.